When my husband and I were first married, we were graduate students, we were very poor, and we were in this very small apartment, probably about a third of a size of a Carmen dorm room. <laughs> Maybe not that big. And this very small apartment had two rooms with a narrow hallway in the middle, and we didn't have much furniture. Anything that was in our apartment was because someone had given it to us. So we had the couch that my parents bought when I was four. Uh, our television came from John's grandma. And, and this, this TV was so small, it had a handle on it, okay? So not a lot of money. And we decided that the best way to decorate, to get atmosphere in our apartment, would be to light candles. Because, you know, you, you light a candle, and all of a sudden everything looks better. And so that was our habit. We would eat dinner, the sun would start to go down, we'd go around the house and light a few candles. And on this particular night, I uh, reached into the drawer to grab this lighter here, and I followed behind John in the narrow hallway, and John did one of these things. He said, what's that in your hand? Now, I thought it would be really funny to say, it's a knife, I'm going to stab you. <laughs> and so I said, it's a knife, I'm going to stab you. And then I just gave him a little jab. I, I didn't say I was the best wife, okay? This is our first month of marriage, so give me a break here. So I, I just give him a little poke, and he lets out the biggest scream. I mean, just top of his lungs yelling. I'm not proud of my response. Well, I'm not proud of my action or of my response. Because in the moment, John screams, and I, I'm rolling my eyes, like, oh, come on. I didn't say this out loud, but I'm thinking, seriously, I poked you. You're overreacting. I didn't even light the thing, so it wasn't like it was hot or anything. Thankfully, I kept these thoughts to myself, and as I'm about to respond with something, I happen to look down and realize that I have not grabbed the lighter. I grabbed a meat thermometer. <laughs> and this meat thermometer had a knife with a serrated edge on the tip of it. And so when I said, it's a knife, I'm going to stab you, it was actually a knife and I actually stabbed him. <laughs> Like, I didn't draw blood, I mean, it, just, it was just a poke. But have you ever been so sure of something, only to find out you were dead wrong? I knew it was just a lighter. I knew it wouldn't hurt. I knew exactly what I was doing. But I was dead wrong. We see something like this take place in Joshua chapter 22 between the tribes of Israel. They think they know exactly what's going on, and it almost causes a war. So to set the stage here, this is Joshua 22, and I think it's going to be easiest if we actually use this space to explain it. So I want you to imagine we've got the 10 tribes of Israel all over here, okay? Every, everybody in this first section. 
And then this aisle way back here, this will be our Jordan River, okay? It's a bit of a complicated story, and so it helps to kind of visualize it this way. So this is our Jordan River. We've got 10 tribes over here, and then we've got two, tri well, two and a half tribes over here is the other one. Joshua 22, Joshua takes all the tribes and he tells them, spread out, make your homes. And so that's why we have people on this side of the Jordan. They're not fighting or anything, they're just spreading out, making their homes. And things are all fine and good until the 10 tribes over here start to hear some rumors about the two and a half tribes over there. They hear that the tribes across the Jordan River have built an altar, a large altar. When Joshua sent them off, he pretty much only gave them one instruction. Love the Lord your God, keep his commandments. And the whole idea of building an altar on that side of the Jordan was not in keeping with that. So the 10 tribes up here start to panic. Ah, oh, they're breaking the law of Moses. God's gonna get mad at all of us. This is not going to go well. They thought they knew exactly what was going on, only to find out they were dead wrong. So I'm gonna read from Joshua chapter 22, starting with verse 10. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar near the Jordan, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel. When they got to Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. Do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one God, the Lord. The mighty one God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion, or disobedience to the Lord, then don't spare us this day. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord, may the Lord himself call us to account. No. We built this for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? See, the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it's to be a witness between us 
and you and the generations to follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary. Then in the future, your descendants won't be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. If they ever say this to us, we'll answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been faithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas Son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. They were so sure They knew what was going on. Have you had this before? You see a headline, you read an article, and you know what it's going to say, and you just roll your eyes. Or someone's hand goes up in a classroom, and it's, ugh. You don't even bother to listen because you know exactly what they're going to say. You're so sure you know what's going on, only to find out that perhaps you were wrong. One of the things that I love about this story is I love that when the threat of war starts to break out, they send over the priest. They're they're worried that this war is going to break out, we're going to need to go to war to make things right, so let's send over the priest. Wait, what would happen if that was our practice here? We hear about violence going on, so let's make sure we get the Christians over there. What if we had such a reputation as peacemakers that we were the first line of defense. Forget the drones, send in the Christians because that's how peace happens. What if that was a reputation? Phineas, the son of Eleazar. He's not a very exciting hero. I mean, we've got David who kills giants and Jael who, who drives a tent peg into a guy's temple. And we've got Benaniah who who kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And then Phineas, who's a really good listener. He's not all that exciting. And yet, what would it look like for us to be from the line of Phineas? What would this campus look like if we had more people like Phineas, son of Eleazar, who listened not not just to hear things, but to understand, to try to figure out what is going on. Now, they send Phineas across the Jordan, and he's not going over as this week, like, oh, come on, you guys, let's just, let's get along. We know that this is a man of conviction, that he's got really strong opinions. I mean, he's, he's talking about war back here, so we know, we know he's got a pretty strong backbone here. Phineas shows up a number of times in scripture, and each time it's this reputation of being a man with great conviction 
who also listens. And so a few chapters earlier in the book of Joshua, we read this this horrific story, probably one of the most gruesome in the Bible, about about a, a Levite woman who is assaulted and murdered, and it's, it's this atrocity. And Phineas gathers all the tribes together, and he says, what are we going to do? And all the people rose to their feet in unison and declared, none of us will return home. No, not even one of us, until we figure this out. Side note, that's the response of the church when violence, when assault, when abuse takes place. We stand in unison and say, not one of us will go home. The psalmist speaks of Phineas as having the courage to intervene. And a thousand years later, Ezra is talking about Phineas, saying that he's a man of God. So he's got a reputation of being a man of conviction and a man who listens, and this reputation goes on for centuries. It's easy to have one without the other, to have conviction without listening, or listening without conviction. It's it's really easy to have a lot of conviction, to have strong opinions, to share exactly what it is you're thinking. It's harder to listen at the same time. Or it's, it's easy to listen, yeah, yeah, go on, go on, and not have any conviction at all. You just kind of let the person go, you want to feel good. But conviction without listening doesn't make you a leader. It makes you a bully. And listening without conviction doesn't make you a peacemaker. It makes you a pushover. There's something about bringing these two together. The way that Phineas weaves together the strong conviction with the ability to listen, that can stop wars. You're not going to believe this, but every once in a while, someone will fall asleep in my class. I know, I know, hard to imagine. And my first reaction, my gut reaction, my very strong opinion is normally, oh, come on, just go to bed earlier. You don't need another trip to Dirty Dan's or wherever it is you're going in the middle of the night. I've got strong opinions. But I've been teaching long enough to know that I can be so sure of something only to find out that I'm dead wrong. And so I've gotten into the habit now of when I do see a student who's nodding off in class, I might bristle, and then I'll send them an email. Hey, are you okay? I noticed you seem tired in class, just want to check in. Now, normally the response I get from students is the response I'm expecting to get. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm fine. I'm sorry, I just stayed up too late. Sorry about that. But every once in a while, every once in a while, a student will write back and share with me just what it is they're dealing with. And the burdens that they describe that they're carrying, the things that they are trying to sort through, it's immense. And I don't want to add to their pain by sticking a knife in their back. What does it look like to have conviction and listening in one? Phineas is listening, but not so that he can respond. 
He's not there, he's not there just, just waiting for the pause so he can put in his, and my point too. He's listening so he can understand. You know the difference between that kind of listening. While I was in seminary, I served as a chaplain in a nursing home. And there were a few of us there. We would, we would touch base every now and then and just, just talk through what it is we were, we were learning, the questions that we had. And I remember one young man, one of, one of my colleagues, coming in, and he sat down, and he started to describe a conversation that he was having with a resident. She's on her deathbed, things aren't going so well. And he makes the comment, she started to get all emotional. And, and I thought, I can finish this conversation a lot faster. It doesn't need to be as long and drawn out as it might be. Because, he said, I could tell what she was feeling even better than she could. And then he added, and this might be my favorite line, it's probably because of my skills. My, my director here was watching all of this. I'm watching the two of them thinking, what's going to happen here? But you know what? He, he might have been right. Maybe he was really skilled. Maybe he actually did know what this woman was feeling, even better than she could articulate herself. But that doesn't matter. Because the goal isn't to be right. It's to understand. It's to be peacemakers. Think back to John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well. He's asking her questions, but he knows the answers. He doesn't need to ask the questions. He could probably give her response even better than she could. But he still sits there, and he asks his questions, and he actually hears what it is she's saying. If the Son of God finds it valuable to sit there and listen, even when he knows the answer, then perhaps we should too. Because we can't have courageous conversations unless we also have courageous listeners. What makes you roll your eyes? What annoys you? What bothers you? What would it look like to be of the line of Phineas? What would it look like to be the kind of peacemaker, someone who could bring together conviction and listening in such a way that we could stop wars? Forget wars. What would it look like if that happened here on this campus? If we actually could hear one another, not just the words that they're saying, but that we could understand something deeper, not without letting go of our own conviction, but listening to understand. And so those times when somebody says something that makes you cringe, rather than pulling away, we lean in and we ask, help me understand this. Can you share more about that with me? What would your dorm look like if there wasn't the drama of, well, she said, he said, I'll bet this happened, 
the assumptions that we allow to poison our relationships? What if we listened with conviction? I don't know if you caught how this story ends. It ended with the the altar across the Jordan being called a witness. We're going to leave this up as a monument, they said. A witness. A witness between us that God is Lord. If you want to know how to witness to this world... The first step is to listen. If we have that reputation as Christians, that we're the people that can stop wars, that we are the peacemakers of this world, could you imagine the witness that would be to this world? A witness that God is Lord. Are you from the line of Phineas? And not just the line of Phineas, we might say the line of Jesus Christ himself. The line of Jesus Christ who the Apostle John tells us we can have confidence in because he is listening to us right now. We have a God who listens to us even though He sees all things. And not only is he listening to us, he's also praying for us, speaking to us, to his Father on behalf of us. So whatever it is you're struggling with, this this struggle of really listening to someone, of getting someone, of being able to hear a phrase or a headline without rolling your eyes, you have Jesus Christ praying for you to strengthen you in conviction and your ability to listen. This is what it means to be of the line of Phineas and more broadly the line of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your words, for these Bibles that we own. And yet we acknowledge that sometimes we can be so sure that we know the law of Moses that we miss the work that you are doing right in front of us. I pray that we would use the word of God not as a weapon, Lord, but something, something that undergirds our conviction and our ability to listen. We want this, Lord, not because we want to just get along, although that would be great, not just because we want a, a nice campus where people get along, but because we believe that this is how wars stop. That this is how you change the world, Lord, by us loving each other, by us loving you. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom to see our own assumptions, to confess our own arrogance, and give us humble hearts that lean in looking for where you are present in places we might not expect. And we pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
And now glory be to God, who by his mighty power at work within you is able to do far more than you would ever dare to ask or even dream of, infinitely beyond your highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. To this God be glory in the church forever. Amen.